I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and For the last few weeks, we've been in this series looking at the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. It's so important that as we see these letters, we don't look at them just as old letters in the Bible, but that we would see them as a mirror in which we see ourselves and ask God that he would change us from the inside out that we would see our own spiritual condition of the heart of us as believers individually and corporately and say, Lord, speak to us as you spoke to those churches. We saw in the church of Ephesus that God called them a loveless church. And then Smyrna, the persecuted church where God said, do not be afraid. The church of Pergamos where they were compromising in doctrine and the Lord told them to repent. And then last week, Thyatira, the church that was a corrupt church that had allowed sin to come into the body of Christ. But today we're going to study in Revelation chapter 3, in only six verses, the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis. And if you like taking notes, I'm going to encourage you to write this down as the title of today's message, The Complacent Church. The Complacent Church. Now, this church was more concerned, Sardis, about a reputation than they were concerned about a relationship. And oftentimes, even today, we become more concerned about a name, an image, than about our character. And this was true of the church of Sardis. It was a great church that was living in the glory of the past. And it was existing based on off of what God had done yesterday, what God had done in the past. It had seen its best days, and now Sardis, this church, started to decline. And they prided themselves in such a big name, in a reputation. But here we learn off of chapter 3 of Revelation that what good is a great name if it belongs to a dead city? What good is a great name if it belongs to a dead city? Because here in the church of Sardis, their ministry didn't live up to their name. And Christ here is coming with an exhortation asking of them, is there any spiritual life in you? Or is it just going through the motions? Are you still spiritually alive or are you spiritually dead? Now, the church of Sardis was complacent, therefore, it was in danger of dying spiritually. Why? Because it was spotted by the world. James chapter 1, verse 27, it says that pure and undefiled religion is that we would keep ourselves unspotted by the world or from the world. They would keep the church pure. So we're going to see three major things as we look at this chapter. Number one, the rebuke that Christ gives to this church of Sardis, the exhortation, and finally the promise. The rebuke, the exhortation, and the promise. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, 
These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, and that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask right now that you would speak to us, Lord, as we look at the letter to the church of Sardis, that you would wake us up from complacency. Lord, that we would be spiritually alive, Lord. We thank you because your Holy Spirit is the one that infuses new life into the church. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would breathe upon your church this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we said, amen. Now, as we see here, first of all, the rebuke that Jesus has for the church of Sardis, we look at verse 1, and it reads this, and to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, to the pastor, to the messenger of the church of Sardis. As a way of introduction, let's look a little bit of the history and background of Sardis and the church of Sardis. Now, Sardis was 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, the church that we studied last week. Sardis was the capital of Lydia, and it was a very important city in Asia Minor. In Sardis and the city of Sardis, we know that history tells us that they worshipped the Roman emperor Caesar. And the goddess Artemis, the goddess of fertility, was very active, the worship now of Artemis there. Now, they were a manufacturer or big manufacturing in wool. And why this is important is because with that wool, they would make garments and clothes. And this is why the Lord speaks of their garments later on in this letter. But the history of the church at Sardis is very similar in parallel of the history of that city of Sardis. Why? Because Sardis had twice fallen, two times was overtaken by their enemies because of overconfidence and because of failure to watch. Sardis was overtaken by the enemy because of overconfidence and failure to watch. It was a Persian king, King Cyrus, that had ended the rule of Croesus by scaffolding the cliffs and going over the walls at night and now covering himself with darkness when it overtook the city of Sardis. Later on, it was Antichus the Great now that captured the city of Sardis this very same way. So the church here also lived with similar traits. Because of their overconfidence and because of their failure to watch, they had entered complacency. And their complacency was based on a full sense of security that led to the downfall of this stronghold. Now, it's very important that we see this because there is a danger in being overconfident. There's a big danger in being overconfident because overconfident soon leads to complacency. Archaeologists and New Testament scholars say of Sardis that nowhere is there a greater example of the melancholy uh, in contrast between the splendor of the past and the present decay. You see, the city was very wealthy. 
And the church was wealthy in new easy living, but it made them very soft and it made them very spoiled. And now this is what the Lord says in verse 1. These things says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Two things from the revelation that John received in chapter 1 of Christ. These things says, he describes Christ now as the master of every spiritual authority and power. Notice what he says. He who has the seven spirits of God. What does this represent? It is the idea of the Holy Spirit and the seven churches working in different ways. Now it says the seven spirits, speaking of the fullness or the completeness of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know here that it is the Holy Spirit who gives life to the church. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life to the church. And this is the very thing that the church of Sardis needed, spiritual life. But not only that, it says he who has the seven spirits and also who has the seven stars. What are the seven stars? They represent the seven churches or the seven pastors in the churches. Near says he who controls even the pastors or who holds the fullness of the church himself, Christ. What is it that Christ says here in verse 1? The end of verse 1, it says, I know your works. Very similar to what the Lord said to the other four churches. I know your works. I can see your perseverance, church. I can see what you're doing, Christians. I know all the things that you are doing. I can see that you've been keeping the faith. Now, as we read this verse, it's very easy to realize that what the church is and what the church does is never hidden from the Lord. What the church is and what the church does is never hidden from the Lord or what the believer is and does, it's not hidden from Christ. And here he's gonna give a strong warning to all the great churches. Why? Because if you notice here in the letter to the church of Sardis, there was no words of commendation as in the other churches to the believers in Sardis. There's no doctrinal problems. There's no opposition. There's no persecution that was mentioned here. In fact, it would have been better if they were persecuted because they became comfortable and they were content living in their past reputation. It was Bible scholar and teacher, Dr. Vance Hafner, that said this, spiritual ministries often go through four stages. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. And Sardis was a monument. They were in the monument stage here, but there was still hope. And here, this is what the Lord is saying. I know your work, Sardis. And we start to realize when we read the letter to this church that, that when man is the head of the church, the church will die. When, when all of man's now man-made programs that exist in the church to try to make or give it life, they never work. They never really truly bring life. But when Christ is the head of the church, he's able to bring life through his Holy Spirit. And yes, they had a big reputation, this very great and large church. But the reputation was without a reality. It was as a form in front of people, but without a force behind it. They glorified themselves in their past splendor, what God did in the past, but they ignored the present decay. Do you see how important it is when we read this? Oftentimes, we become so comfortable as to 
what the Lord did in our lives, in our ministries, or in our churches in the past, and we try to live from the victories of yesterday. When God wants to do a new work in our lives right now. And notice what happens here in this very verse, verse 2. I know your works, that you have a name, or circle that, and right next to it, a reputation. I know you think you have a reputation, and look at what the reputation is, that you are alive, but you're dead. <laughs> I know that you have a name, and with that name, you think comes a status. Or with that name, you think comes an image now that, that oftentimes is very superficial and never spiritual. And your name says that you are alive, but truly, you're dead spiritually. <laughs> Why, Sardis? Because you're populated by unregenerate people, people that have not been truly born again. And notice this, the reason why they did not experience persecution, because the ministry was dying, and their witness was decaying. It, it was no threat to the devil's domain. When the church stomps to face opposition or persecution, we have to ask ourselves, are we still spiritually alive? It's been said before that no friction usually means no motion. We're not moving forward. Therefore, we don't sense the opposition of warfare. There are often times today in the culture and world that we live in that there are the entertainment, seeker-friendly churches. What happens to those churches? It looks like a lot is going on. <laughs> like the churches are full. They have many ministries or events and things are taking place, but spiritually they're dead. They give an appearance or an image as if things are good. The image says that they are alive, but in substance, they are dead. So what is he saying here to the church of Sardis? I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but truly, you are dead. You see, your name, your reputation says one thing, but your spiritual life says another. Well, what a rebuke, what a correction here to the believer and to the Christian, even right now. You can call yourself whatever you want, but what does your life say? What does your life say? Because a reputation is no guarantee for true spiritual character. It's not simply about a reputation, it's about character. And today we're more concerned oftentimes with a reputation, with an image, than truly bearing the image of Christ. You see, despite their outward appearance, despite what people saw of them, Jesus saw them and he said, you're spiritually dead. You're spiritually dead. You would ask yourself, what makes a living church become a dead one? Well, first of all, they stopped seeking the Lord and they started seeking other things. They started seeking other things that would supplement that which only the Holy Spirit can provide and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice it's been said before that a church dies when dead men are doing what should be done by living men. And the death leads then a vacuum or an emptiness. And into that emptiness, we rush. Man rush, rushes into that emptiness with programs, with gimmicks, with tricks now, with entertainment, trying to fill in that void that only the Holy Spirit can do and keep the church alive. Man cannot keep the church alive. Only the Holy Spirit can keep the church alive by the teaching of the word of God. And now some churches are going away from the teaching of the word of God and it's more about the music, the show, the production, and a small message, they call it a sermonette. I heard before, sermonettes produce Christianettes. 
Christians that never grow. And a living church becomes a dead church when it loves the systems more than it loves Jesus. When it loves the programs more than it loves Jesus. When it loves its policies more than it loves Jesus. When it depends now on a process more than depending upon the Holy Spirit. You know what that church is? It's filled with methods and not with God's word. So from the outward appearance, it looks like it's alive, but spiritually it has very little substance and it's dead. It gives an appearance to be something that truly it is not. And so likewise, the individual believer, it can give an appearance, we can give an appearance of something that we truly are not. By what? Going through the motions. And notice here, after hearing the rebuke, notice the exhortation, notice the command. Because the command is very straightforward as Christ says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Be watchful. That word be watchful means to be vigilant. And the reason why they had to be vigilant, the reason why they're now being encouraged to be watchful now is for the purpose of protection. Why does the church need to be watchful? So that it can protect itself from the enemy. But with being watchful, it says be watchful, remember, and repent. Be watchful, remember, and repent. That is the exhortation. And the word watchful, what it means, it not only means to be vigilant, it doesn't only mean to be alert, but it means this, church, wake up. Why? Because the church was sleeping. And we truly see, as we look at the church of Sardis, that them then and today now, the church needs a spiritual awakening. The church needs a spiritual awakening from being asleep. You see, they had stopped being watchful and it reflected in their spiritual condition. When we stop being watchful, it's very dangerous when we're not watching or we're not waiting on the Lord because we become distracted with the wrong things and we stop watching and waiting. Notice if the church is not watching, then the church is not praying. And if the church is not praying, the church then is straying. We must be watching and waiting. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 26 when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane? Watch and what? And pray. Lest you enter into temptation, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It says, be vigilant, stay awake for your protection and stay praying so that you don't allow the enemy to come in. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, God's word tells us this, be sober and be vigilant. Be watchful now because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. What is the encouragement here that he's saying to the church of Sardis? The exhortation is to be watchful. To be watchful, to understand, to have an awareness. You see, the first step to a dying church, to a dying, spiritually dying believer, is to have an honest awareness that something is wrong. We can't say that we are going to have a spiritual awakening if we first don't realize that there is a problem. I love what Warren Worsby says. He says this, when an organism is alive, there is growth, repair, reproduction, and power. If these elements are lacking in a church, 
then that church is either dying or already dead. And it's the true and same with a believer. Is there any growth? Is there any reproduction? Is there still power? Because if these things are missing, then the believer, it's either dying or spiritually dead already. Some people often say, well, you know what? You can't fix something that's not broken. And that's why they never grow spiritually. We must have an awareness that something is wrong. We must have an awareness that we need a spiritual awakening so that we can see God move in the church. And notice what he says, not only does he say be watchful, he says strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. I want you to strengthen those things that that are left, that are almost dead, that are ready to die. Don't let the church die. In fact, he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and don't give up just because the church is weak. Wake up, church. Strengthen, be encouraged. Build one another up. Because it's when the church leaders and the, the congregation now become accustomed to their blessings and complacent about the ministry that the enemy finds a way in. And something that happens, we become accustomed to the blessing where God has us, everything that God has given us, and when we become accustomed to that blessing, then we become complacent in the ministry and the enemy finds a way in because of complacency. Why? Complacency kills your spiritual walk. Complacency kills. So he says, be watchful and strengthen. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul tells the church in Rome, he says this, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time. Everybody say, high time. Now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in this day, not in revilery, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife or envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What is it that Paul tells the church? Knowing that it is high time because we believe that the coming of Christ is, we are closer to it today than we ever were before. We must realize it is time to wake up. And to strengthen those things that remain. To strengthen those things that are about to die if we don't wake up. And not only does he tell him this, but notice at the end of verse 2 it says, For I have not found your works perfect before God. You must wake up because I don't find your actions meeting the requirements or the standard of God. In your heart or in your mind, it shows that your actions are not wholesome before God. Why are they not wholesome before God? Because the church was responding to sin instead of responding to the Holy Spirit. And they're living on past victories. They're living on past days where they had spiritual intimacy with the Lord. It's interesting oftentimes that we think about the past and how the Lord used us or how close we are when we heard the voice of God every day. And we think that because we had that season one day that we are all right with God today. No, he tells them, wake up. You may may have had a season where you were close to the Lord, but now you're spiritually dead. And notice he says, be watchful, but then the second exhortation is remember. Why remember? Because we oftentimes forget where we were with the Lord. 
And it's in the moments that we forget that we can become comfortable, complacent, and soon lose all the spiritual life that we had in us. So it says in verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember means go back to what you heard. Go back to what you believed at first. What, is it, what does it mean to remember, to recollect? Or it means to rehearse in your mind, to make mention of those things, or to be mindful. Do you remember that, where it says remember? It means be mindful. Be mindful of what you received, of how you received it when you first heard it. Of the message of the gospel when it was first implanted in your heart and that you were ready to do his will as a song that we just sang. Do you remember now how it was those days? In fact, not only are you to remember what you received and how you heard it and how you received it, but hold fast to it. Remember and hold fast. Hold fast means to hold firmly or hold onto it. Remember, notice this, and obey it. This is the exhortation that Christ has for the church of Sardis and for us even this morning. Remember how you received it, what you heard, and then obey it. Remember those things. There was Warren Worsby that said this, it is good to guard our spiritual heritage, but we must never embalm it. It is not enough to be true to the faith and have a great history. That faith must produce life and works. Oftentimes we now are so in love to the, with the past that yes, we have a true faith and a great history, but that great history should help us grow now and it should produce new life and new works. This is exactly what was happening here at the church of Sardis, that they had forgotten now living on the past and they were to remember and to obey that which they had received. So he says, remember, he says, be watchful. And then finally he says here, repent. Hold fast and repent. We talked about that this last Wednesday night. If you looked at Psalms 51, where David the psalmist is repenting of his sin after having been confronted with the truth about it. And what is repentance? True repentance means turn to me again, Christ is saying. True repentance is being broken for sin and also being broken from sin. When you've been truly repented, you're broken because of your sin and you're broken from your sin. In fact, repentance, we must talk about it, includes three things. I want to tell you those three things quickly. Number one, it speaks of the understanding, repentance. The understanding because you have a knowledge and an acknowledgement of your sin. Number one, repentance is about acknowledging your sin and understanding. Number two, also repentance has to do with the feelings. Why? Because it also produces a pain a grief or a sorrow due to our sin. That is true repentance. There is some type of brokenness associated with repentance and the sin. But finally, repentance also has to do with the will because it must include a change of mind and a turning around. That is true repentance. A change of mind and a turning around. In fact, it has a major double aspect. You're looking back at the things of the past with a weeping eye, but you're looking at the things of the future with a watchful eye, truly having repented. And know this, when the sin is confessed in the church, 
When the sin is confessed within the body of believers and we get right with God, and then we get right with one another as a church and as, as brothers and sisters, then the Spirit infuses a new life. Only then. And you know what that's called? Revival. Revival. But it doesn't happen until we repent and get right with God and right with one another. In fact, what happens here in verse 3 that Christ says this, Repent, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I have come upon you. If you don't watch. Now, do you see here a condition that Christ speaks to the church with? If you do not watch, if you don't wake up, he's saying, if you're spiritually asleep, if you don't, if you don't become vigilant or alert, I will come suddenly as a thief. What does he say as a thief? Because he's going to come in an unexpected way with judgment or with destruction. A thief never tells you he's coming. He doesn't say tomorrow at 3 a.m. I'm going to rob your house. So be ready. No, he says, as a thief, I'm going to come unexpectedly. So you must be watching because if you don't watch, I'm going to come at a time that you're not expecting. So we must be watching. But notice this. Please remember this, church. We also must be waiting for him. Waiting for him. If we look around in our world, we start to see and notice that these are the days, the very last days that the Bible spoke about. We're living in the last days. And if we are living in the last days and we truly believe that based off the Bible and its prophecy, then these are the days that the church must be watching. What does the Bible say? When you see these things begin to happen, look up because your redemption draws near. As that song we once sang many years ago, people get ready. Jesus is coming to take from the world his own. It's in Mark chapter 13. Jesus spoke about watching. Notice this. But of that day, Mark 13, verse 32, he says this, an hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. What is it that Christ is telling the church then and today? He's telling us to watch. If not, he's going to come in an hour that we don't expect. And ask ourselves, ask yourself today, what do you want to have him find you doing when he comes. When the Lord comes, will you be watching or will you be sleeping spiritually? Will we be like those servants that Jesus spoke about in that parable, that their waist was girded and their lamps were burning, waiting for the master of the house to come back home, watching and waiting? Because here he speaks to the church of Sardis, you must wake up or else I will come to you unexpectedly as a thief and bring judgment and destruction. But then he also has an encouragement. Let's look at verse 4 because there is an encouragement here about a faithful few remnant. There's a remnant even in a dying church. You have a few names, it says here, even in Sardis, even in this dead church, there's a few who have not defiled their garments or their clothes. 
There's a few here that have not defiled their clothes. Clothes here, he refers to character. There's a few of you whose character has not been now defiled by sin. They have not defiled themselves. They have not smeared themselves. Defile means to pollute or to stain. There are some of you here that are still remnant. There are a few names there that have not defiled their character or stained it. They had remained faithful to Christ. Unlike some of the believers, these believers had victory over sin. They demonstrated a godly character that they were still living in obedience. And they didn't grow comfortable. They weren't complacent. Now, this very few that he's talking about, it was a devoted spiritual remnant that held the future of this church and this ministry. So he speaks to them now. There is a few remnant here, verse 4, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now these believers, they were living in the world, but they refused to be worldly. It's so important that we notice that. Because even us right now today, as we are living in the world, we have to make and purpose in our hearts that we are refusing to live worldly or in with secular principles. Here, this few remnant that he's referring to, he's saying, these are the remnant now or the faithful that have not defiled themselves and they're still walking in obedience. They will walk with me in white. What does white mean in purity? White speaks of holiness. White represents godly character, faithful service unto the Lord. It talks about a closeness and a fellowship here in verse 4. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They are worthy to walk with me. You see, this is the greatest reward that Christ can offer us, to walk with him in closeness and in intimacy and in fellowship. And we can say we're walking worthy of Christ. In fact, do you remember back in the Gospels where Jesus called Peter, James, and John to go up to the mountain and Jesus was there transfigured? It was in Mark here, chapter 9, verse 2. It says this, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all there alone. And there he was transfigured before them, his clothes became dazzling white. What was it? It was the holiness. It was the majesty. It was the purity. Now, and here he's speaking that these believers, this remnant was walking worthy. Therefore, they would walk in the brilliance now of eternal purity. They're going to walk with me in the brilliance of eternal purity forever. And finally comes a promise after seeing the rebuke, the exhortation. But look at the promise here in verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Again, the white garments. And he speaks of those that are victorious. Speaks of those that are not complacent. Those that have not become comfortable in their spiritual walk and they're consistently growing, they're spiritually alive. What does he say? Those that overcome shall be clothed in white garments or in white robes. You see, it was in ancient Greece that the white robes represented something. It represented three things. In fact, it represented a white robe, number one, purity. 
Those that overcome will be clothed in white robes that represent number one purity. The Bible says that only the pure will see God. So he says, you're going to be clothed in purity because you overcome this world, the sin, and the complacency. But the white robes also represented festivity. (laughs) Why? Because there is a joy of heaven, and it's going to be a festive joy. (laughs) We have to understand that that's exactly what heaven is going to be like. In fact, if your salvation doesn't bring you joy, then what does it bring you? There are often times that we leave our house every single day, and We're upset at everything, right? We check for our phone. Maybe you check for your wallet. You check for all kinds of things that you need to take to work. But do you ever check your joy? The joy of your salvation? (laughs) He says, those that overcome are going to be clothed in white robes that signify purity, that signify a, a festive joy or a celebration of heaven. And finally, the white robes signify victory. Victory. Why? Because we're going to share in the victory in Christ or of Christ. That white robe would say you're going to be given a white robe that signifies the purity, the splendor and the brilliance of the Lord, the festivity or the joy, the celebration that we're going to have in the Lord and the victory that we share with him in Christ, overcomers, all true Christians, Notice he even says this at the end of verse 5, will be clothed in white garments or robes, and that will not blot out his name from the book of life. What strong words of assurance that we get there on our salvation. This is you're going to be clothed in a white robe, and I guarantee you that your name is written in the book of life. There is an assurance of our salvation, and we can rejoice in that. That God is saying, I'm giving you a safe passage. I'm telling you, you can trust me, overcomer, true believer, born again, Christian. Your name is written in the book of life. What a promise we have there. A strong word of assurance and affirmation to our salvation. But then he also says this at the end of verse 5. He says, I will confess his name before my father in heaven. Notice how important this verse is. I will confess their name before my Father in heaven. How does the Lord confess our name? When we first confess his name here on earth. What does that mean to confess the Lord? The best way to confess the Lord's name is by the way that you live your life. Is by the way that you live your life. Because we can say something with our lips, but are we living it with our lives? Are we living it with our lives? Oftentimes people say, well, you know what? I'm ready to die for the Lord in the tribulation. I'm ready to be here and be persecuted by faith. And I can die for them when that time comes. But if you can't live for him now, how will you die for him later? So it says, he who confesses me before men, I will confess him before the Father is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 says this, therefore, whoever confesses me, Before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What was the Lord telling the church of Sardis saying, wake up church, you're sleeping. (laughs) And not only are you sleeping here, he says, I want you to receive this so that you are watchful, you remember and repent, or else I will come with judgment and it's going to be unexpected. 
Let's look at verse six finally as he says this. He who has an ear, he who can listen to this, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Today, the Spirit is still speaking to the churches. What he's saying, this application is for everyone. This application isn't just simply for some people, it's for everyone. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the warning here in only six verses? That if we are to, that we are not to grow comfortable in our churches and our spiritual walk, or we will find ourselves slowly dying spiritually. We may outwardly present ourselves to be close to the Lord, but are we spiritually still close to him? But the encouragement also is that that no church here, as we saw the church in Sardis had a remnant, no church here is beyond the hope. If there is a remnant there willing to strengthen the things that remain, that Christ, even in God's word, you notice what Christ does? He is willing to make dead things come alive. He's willing to make dead things come alive. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it said that Hugh, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in our sins, but he made us alive spiritually through the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's telling the church of Sardis here, understand this, your complacency will kill your spiritual walk. Your complacency will ruin your spiritual walk. And today we have to make that decision as well ourselves, saying, Lord, am I growing closer to you or am I growing complacent? Because I don't want to be a sleeping church. I want to wake up to that which, Lord, you have for me today. So that I don't, I don't find your coming, I don't find your return, or I don't find your judgment coming as a thief unexpectedly in my life.